for my diligence in earning merit badges in a Calvinist Boy Scout-like group in our Christian Reformed Church. I know. However, that year they split the award between two of us. I did not stand victorious alone on that podium. My next, uh, my next triumph came the summer after 11th grade. I worked on a quarter horse farm and was given the summer-long task of teaching a year-old colt to stand properly and run in a circle. They took him to a show and he won fourth place for looking pretty while standing. And they let me keep the ribbon. Please turn your attention to Exhibit A, and I would ask that you hold your applause to the end. I ironed it before photographing it, really. I'd wear it if my wife would let me. And while you might think it's no big deal to teach a horse to stand still, it's not as easy as it looks. Actually, adding to my litany of loserdom, that horse bashed me in the face and I bit through my lip. I earned that losing ribbon. The next thing I won, seriously, came last summer, 28 years later. I went to a Georgia State slalom water ski tournament and won third place in my division. I know. I got a medal for my skiing prowess. Please turn your attention to the small blue medal on the left side of your screen. But in the interest of full disclosure, there were only three competitors in my division. I, I got third out of three and I was way last. I think I almost drowned. I could go on. Uh, in fact, I will. Upon finishing a master's program at UTC back in 1996, I went to my graduation ceremony. At such ceremonies, a professional photographer snaps a picture of you as you cross the stage. A couple weeks later, they sent me a proof of my graduation picture. They were a bit off in their mail merge. My picture was affixed to a piece of cardstock containing computer script that read, Matthew Voss, here is your proof. Glued just below my name was a photo of a very large black woman in a voluminous graduation robe. Even when I actually graduate, I failed to receive proper credit or recognition. <laughs> I'm a serious loser. Last year, I got an article published after submitting it to at least five different journals. After each rejection, I dutifully made changes, altered the format, changed from APA to Chicago style, and so on. And finally, I got it published. It was like writing a sip five or six times. After making revisions three times for an education journal, education, the editor said, I think we're starting to get somewhere. Let's rework the whole thing. <laughs> this is true. <laughs> Even in the classroom, a place I very much enjoy and where I feel at home, I sometimes wonder if I'm seen as a winner or a loser. The years go by and still I find myself thinking, I don't know what I'm talking about. I hope they don't notice. <laughs> this usually comes right after I hear someone doing a campus tour where they're telling prospective students and their families that our professors come from such places as Harvard and Princeton. Sometimes, after what I consider to be a compelling and exemplary classroom performance, I still hear that small haunting voice that I think many professors here at the college have heard, that self-incriminating voice that comes from deep inside and which says, that was good, but let's face it, you're no Becky Pennington. Some of you faculty members know what I mean. Switching gears, I married a winner. My wife, Joan, is a distance runner and has been so since about age 12. She's really almost never missed so much as a week of running. I can only say that about television watching. <laughs> we, 
With only her second marathon, the Chickamauga Marathon, she qualified to compete in the Boston Marathon. When she ran in Boston, she finished in the upper half of runners. She completed the Panama City Half Ironman Triathlon, a mile and a half swim in shark-infested waters where people actually were bit the following week, 64-mile bike ride, and 13.1-mile run while I drank coffee and complained about the heat. <laughs> Exhibit B is a picture of just some of her trophies. Really, just some. When I said, well, where are the rest? Oh, I think I donated them to something. I'm like, I would never donate a trophy. <laughs> they aren't for participation only. She's won dozens and dozens of place awards in her age group. One time she won a half marathon, overall woman in Chattanooga. There was a time where I was married to overall woman. That's amazing. Another time she won female runner of the year here in Chattanooga. I doubt I could win loiterer of the year. One time my wife ran a half marathon and then came home and cleaned the gutters on our house all while I stayed inside writing a paper for some grad school assignment. May you marry so well someday. But one award stands out for Joan, an award only she has won, an award so prestigious it makes a marathon win seem downright irrelevant. She won it back when she and I were dating, back when her name was Joan Vandermolen. Here it is. And the inscription says, Joan Vandermolen, best girlfriend of the 91-92 season. <laughs> if you're needing Valentine's uh, Day ideas for your significant <laughs> sweetheart. Yeah, yeah. You don't find that kind of deep love in this world anymore. <laughs> but she's a winner, all right. I guess being married to her, I am too. I bask in her reflected glory. I find that we think a lot about whether we're winners or losers. It's very important to us that we come out on top. Everywhere you look, you see claims being made that basically say, come join us and be winners with us. Come out on top. Come and have others beneath you. Come and enjoy the view from up here with us. Come change the world, and so on. And it's not just the winning we seem to be after. It's the bragging rights. It's the boasting. And it starts early in life. I remember about two Olympic cycles ago, my daughter Kate, who was adopted from Bulgaria, became very frustrated with my daughter Rose, adopted from China, when the Chinese kept winning everything. <laughs> You're a bit out of luck when you pin your hopes on the Bulgarians to medal. She said things like, I'm so sick of the Chinese, they win everything. And this was true. But what was interesting to me was that even at the tender young age of seven or so, she had a consciousness of what it meant to be linked with the winners and of what it meant to be denied the boast. This sense of being undermined by the Chinese was acute enough that we thought a bit about whether we should adopt from China again. But we did, and the United Nations wars continue in our home. Our deep hunger to be enmeshed with the peer groups, colleges, governments, nations, churches, sports teams, high schools, presidential candidates, and rock and roll bands, just to name a few, that will anchor our identities to something transcendent to that which we can be proud of, drives most of what we do and pursue. We're addicted to boasting and at so many levels. I've wondered what the big deal is with US News and World Report rankings. Do they represent anything real? Would we ever quietly receive a good ranking and just keep it to ourselves? Not likely. They're about a kind of institutional boast, a boast that says we're winners in all the relevant ways. And we matter to the people who matter, by which we mean the people that make up those lists. I'm not sure they have any real utility outside of the boast. And how are we winners? 
We're winners because we perform better than those others. Come join us. We're winners. Win with us. It will set you up for a winning life. A few years back, I co-directed co the McClellan Scholars Program with Dr. Green. Each Christmas break was filled with reading the candidates' applications. I think that on average, uh, often it was uh, Sarah Huffines, Professor Huffines, Jay Green, and me, and we'd read about 90 or so each, and then we'd collaborate on them. And it was fun stuff. I kind of enjoyed it. It was heady stuff to read. What a bunch of winners. I saw grade point averages of 5.0 on a four-point scale. Really. Only they can do that kind of math. It got to the point where I began seeing candidates with GPAs of, say, 3.89 as mentally challenged. What chance do they have out there? Where will they ever be accepted? Where did their parents go wrong? But the grade point average was, was just one dimension of the whole package. What extracurriculars? What achievements in sports? What musical proficiency? We read the files of students who had started their own nonprofit organizations, who'd played first chair violin in community orchestras, who began Christian outreach ministries in their hostile to Christianity schools. We saw the files of young people who had taken four years of Latin while managing, while managing to avoid the nerdiness that normally goes along with that sort of thing. Sorry if you love Latin. We were out of homeschool students who had designed and built the very homes in which they were schooled. <laughs> it was amazing. It was so much different from my own experience, which was riddled with average grades, few, by which I mean no, sports achievements, three years of mangled French, and no world-changing mission trips. I spent a lot of time in the Priest Hill Center after reading those action-packed files. And when we hosted scholarship candidates on campus, they had the very difficult task of trying to communicate to a bunch of us what winners they were while simultaneously demonstrating a humility and deference toward others that would put Mother Teresa to shame. Sports constitute a significant site for our boasting. Right now, my 11-year-old daughter, Kate, is beginning to get good at basketball. And she's great fun to watch. And for the first time, her CCS team is on a winning streak they are undefeated, undefeated, this year. And in the eight or nine games they've played, they've almost never had anyone get within 25 or 30 points of them. She's adopted. <laughs> and to my great shame, I can feel the boast rising up in me. It's interesting how easy it is for a 44-year-old man to feel indignation and anger at some 50-pound 10-year-old on the other team when my daughter or someone on my team is being wronged. The other day, we were winning with a score of about 32 to 1. That's not an exaggeration. It's an under-exaggeration of anything. When the ref failed to call some apparently noticeable foul on some little girl who just bumped into one of our players, the mother of that fouled girl sitting next to me let loose with a verbal barrage of information intended to help the referee consider a few things about himself, his abilities, and his little C calling. When I, when I quietly said to her, well, we are winning by 30 points, she pursed her lips and said, fair is fair. And you don't mess with a woman with pursed lips. <laughs> but how easily I fall into the same tone and patterns, losing all perspective when the boast of my group is the least bit threatened. I could go on about the social venues we inhabit which give rise to boasting. I could talk about how our theology is sometimes used to support an existential boast positioning us slightly above our more confused brothers and sisters in the faith. 
I could talk about how our identity as Americans provides for the sort of boast that some scholars think fuels the very terror attacks we so fear. I could talk about how our affiliation with winning SEC teams, particular computer brands, Mac or PC, even brands of automobiles function as accoutrements to the self, a self-buttressed and given definition by groups designed as socially desirable. Such group-based boasts find their uglier expression in racism, sexism, classism, and ageism. And this puts us, my friends, firmly in sociological territory. Racism is a boast in one's perceived genotype. Sexism involves a boast in one's sex or gender. Classism involves a boast in one's shared economic situation. Ageism boasts superiority in one's youthfulness, perhaps out of a fear of the aging and death we all will face. All of these hint at transcendence, albeit a misplaced one, linked to group identity. And group identity is established not on its own, but in reference to relevant outgroups. In fact, social identity theorists like Michael Hogg explain that successful leaders are typically people who are exemplars of groups, people about whom subordinates can say, she's one of us, or he gets us. And leaders, by this same theory, maintain the support of followers by consistently showing in-group favoritism, by establishing favorable contrasts with relevant outgroups. In fact, Hogg and his colleagues make the point that leaders begin to be ineffective when they start increasing the social distance between themselves and the groups they lead. They're quite critical of CEOs who make zillions more than their followers and who no longer eat lunch where the average employee does. In other words, they're critical of leaders who start to boast in themselves and not in their subordinates. Such leaders, they feel, fragment organizational community. Now, if you haven't figured it out, this chapel is about boasting. I'm interested in it because, one, I do it a lot. I make quite a good living at it. And two, it's an inherently sociological phenomenon. And three, it figures prominently in the scriptures. Boasting involves an attempt to elevate one's social position. And one of the ways we understand how we are doing is to measure ourselves as we compare with others. We very seldom have absolute, objective, and well-defined standards with which to evaluate ourselves. And so we compare ourselves with others to know if we're doing well, poorly, and so on. A few years ago, a Seinfeld episode satired this when Kramer announced that he was taking karate. You've seen this? And that he was dominating at his dojo. When Jerry and the gang showed up, they found he was taking a class with 10-year-olds. His boast, consequently, meant nothing because it was made in reference to an irrelevant group. Said Jerry, you're beating up 10-year-olds. It's my best Seinfeld. And like so many other Seinfeld episodes, this drew attention to the more serious problem of just how far we go to compare favorably with others. This process of social comparison has paradoxical implications for us. We know ourselves only in reference to others. We're inextricably tied to groups. But when we try to accent identity through social distinction, we increase our social distance from others, unmooring ourselves from the people around us, and this ushers in a crisis of identity whereby we know ourselves less. We're driven to separate from others, and ironically, separate from others we cannot know ourselves. Perhaps Paul understood this when in Romans 12 he wrote, Do not be haughty but associate with the lowly. If you fail to associate with the lowly, 
or if your interactions with them are primarily about your own social position, you will never know who you are. Most sociology, or much sociology, is an attempt to identify, reveal, and dismantle boasting. If you think about it, most of the world's problems can be reduced to boasting. When people boast in their race, genocide can result. When people boast in their nation, terrorism can result. When people boast in their gender, sexual exploitation and denial of benefits can result. And when people boast in their religion, wars sometimes result. When people in a given workplace boast in their high position, discord and disillusionment can result. And so from my perspective, one of the most important Bible verses for Christian living can be found in 2 Corinthians 11.30, where Paul writes, If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. Boasting of weakness cements us to others by bringing about a new, more, a more new, sorry. Boasting of weakness cements us to others by bringing a new, more communal social imaginary into play and reminding the boaster of the reality of his or her situation. I dare say it's only in weakness that we can really know ourselves. Isn't it a relief when accomplished and admirable people reveal their failings and you don't feel so alone in yours? Isn't it exhausting to keep up the boast yourself? I'm constantly aware of how much I need to reveal my failings to my children. What if they only know my competency and strength? If that's all I show them, they will never know me. The Bible's full of both overt and covert references to boasting. From Eve's Garden of Eden hope that she could elevate her social position and become like God, to the golden calf in Exodus 32, an idol which represents self-worship and therefore a boast, to the Jews' hope that the Messiah would bolster national pride, to the disciples arguing about which of them will be greatest in the kingdom of heaven. We see the created boasting about themselves rather than finding their identities in the creator. On the flip side, we see the Son of God lowering himself to the status of human and eschewing crass social comparison as a means of self-knowledge and identity. The concordance to the ESV offers 20 references to boasting and its derivatives. I read through these trying to gain a sense of what human boasting means across the biblical narrative. And I think you can summarize the boasting themes under three headings. One, do not engage in foolish boasting or arrogance, for these things do not spring from faith. Two, if you must boast, boast about your weakness. Three, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Let me show you a few of these. Uh, Psalm 5.5, 5, the boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. Uh, James 4, come now you who say tomorrow, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is a sin. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. And I really like Psalm 34 too. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. O magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. Because it shows where proper boasting can be lodged and it's in the context of community and in the context of boasting in the Lord. And there are a lot more, and even more are implicit in the text. 
One of the most compelling for me is the John 8 account of the Pharisees bringing before Jesus a woman caught in adultery. And here I'll show my non-biblical studies credentials. The very idea of being caught in, not after, adultery. And I'm probably misinterpreting this, but I can think of few other social scenarios so devoid of opportunity for boasting. How mortifying, how awful. And look what the Pharisees do. They bring the woman to Jesus as a form of boast. I don't think they were so mortified by what she'd done. After all, in this patriarchal society in which they lived, they didn't bring the man caught in adultery. They only brought the less powerful person. And they used her mortification as a platform for boasting. Hey, Jesus, look at this woman. Now look at us. But Jesus refuses their boast and reframes the situation in a way that elevates the lost and the least, the disgraced woman. And who left that encounter justified? Who had no boast to get in the way of receiving the free grace Jesus offered? In the story, the woman doesn't even repent. All she says in response to Jesus is that no one condemned her. She's a loser. And for all of her nothingness, she receives everything. Look at the Pharisees time and again. Almost everything written about them is a record of their boast. And with each new encounter with Jesus, they boast themselves away from the grace that all losers who encounter Jesus receive. Boasting is antithetical to grace. Full hands cannot hold it. Ken Gergen is a contemporary sociologist from whom I've gleaned ideas about our penchant for boasting. His recent book, Relational Being Beyond Self and Community, develops and reinforces the notion that there really is no self apart from others. Much of his book is spent bringing attention to the various ways in which our society drives us to separate ourselves from the herd. So many of our social interactions are spent defining boundaries between ourselves and others. And much of this results in loneliness. Currently, almost half of all adults in the United States live alone. Gergen invites us to renewed appreciation of self with others. And he calls this relational confluence. In addition to loneliness, one implication of the relentless and socially constructed drive to separate and distinguish ourselves is that we live in a world of unrelenting evaluation. Consider his words. Gergen says, If I am fundamentally alone, the origin of my actions, then what is to be said of failure? To be sure, there are events outside my control, but by and large, my failures are of my own doing. In this sense, any inadequate performance, impropriety, or public failure throws the essential me into question. All insufficiencies in behavior are potentially expressions of an internal lack. To explain it wasn't my fault, my parents neglected me, or I had no knowledge of the consequences is to defend against the dreaded accusation, you are inferior. The possibility of personal inferiority begins as early as a child's first experience with competitive games. My failure is not taken lightly. Upon entering school, the self in question becomes institutionalized. From that day forward, the individual exists in a state of continuous evaluation. Am I good enough? Will I fail? How will I be judged by my teachers, parents, and classmates? Have I sinned? The stakes become higher as one's career is on the line. There are the SATs, IQ scores, GREs, MCATs, LSATs. And then the college graduate enters into adult professional life 
to find semi-annual performance evaluations, promotion evaluations, a life replete with threats to one's worth. Gergen goes on to link this ever-looming threat of failure to our national obsession with self-esteem, something he calls a national neurosis. And it also engenders distrust of others and sets in motion an active search for others' failures. When we're chronically concerned with self-worth, we search for measures of how good am I? The question demands comparison with others. Am I more or less intelligent, talented, humorous, motivated, and so on? And so our lives are spent in search of the boast, avoiding unfavorable comparisons and actively promoting favorable ones. Says Gergen, as a whole, research on social comparison paints a gloomy picture. It suggests that we enter the world each day looking through gray lensed glasses. We avoid seeing the good in others and take comfort in locating their failings. We scan the social world to ensure we are better than all. In other words, our lives become a boast and we find our sense of self and worth in our separation and distinction from others and not in our enmeshment with and dependence on them. I could go on about what various sociologists have written, delighting you to no end, but who can deal with that much excitement? Let's switch gears momentarily, moving from sociological to theological ideas about boasting. Robert Farrar Capon, a theologian from somewhat outside our tradition that I've come to appreciate, in a book titled The Parables of Judgment, which ironically are the parables of grace, writes about Zacchaeus, and in a way I hadn't before considered. Capon turns our attention to what a big loser Zacchaeus is. Even his name. Think about it. We give our kids all kinds of biblical names. But no one ever introduces you to, well, this is my son, Zacchaeus. Capon says that Zacchaeus is a loser in two ways. He's a publican or tax farmer, and he's very short, which makes it impossible for him to even see what's going on in front of the crowd. Well, you all know the story about how Jesus finds him in a tree and tells him he's going to dine with him that evening. The crowd is appalled. Jesus is going to eat with the sinner, a person without boast. But Capon tells us, just as Jesus settles in for a nice, relaxed meal, Zacchaeus stands up and launches into a during-dinner speech. Look, Lord, he says, trying to dispel his universally bad press, I give half of what I have to the poor, and if I've given anyone a raw deal, I'll make it up to him four times over. Now, I have always seen this little speech as evidence of sanctification in Zacchaeus' life where before he did bad, now he'll do good. Capon puts a different spin on it. He says that Zacchaeus' words are pretty comparable to what we're used to hearing from the Pharisees. Another quote. Do you see now what the acted parable of Zacchaeus is about? It's precisely about a publican making the Pharisee's speech. A loser who thinks that, thank God and his better instincts, he's gotten over his losing behavior and become a 24-carat winner. And what does Jesus say to him? He says something straight off the wall with no intervening explanation. Jesus announces, Today salvation has come to this house, since he is also a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. In other words, Jesus brings Zacchaeus back down to the only ground on which he can possibly stand and receive favorable judgment. The ground of the last, the lost, the least, the little, and the dead. It's not Zacchaeus' list of good deeds that saves him but simply his status as one more loser in the long history of God's preference for losers. His boast is little more than an impediment. I really find this helpful. If the story of Zacchaeus is about his new boast, I'll give back four times. I, as loser, 
cannot relate. But if it is, as Capon tells us, about Jesus bringing him back to the place of losing and death, the only terms on which Jesus works, then I can take comfort and can once again locate myself in the great redemptive narrative of Scripture. Jesus comes to us in our losing and not in our social achievements and position. If, as Capon says, Jesus comes to the last, the lost, the least, and the dead, he comes for those who cannot and must not boast. I leave you with a couple concluding thoughts. The great paradox of the Christian life is that we're called to be losers. Oddly, our winning comes through losing, our life through death. Think about how much scripture talks about giving up your social position, your righteous indignation, your accomplishments, your life. Think about how the Christian calling is a call to give things up, to pour out, to empty oneself. This is why calling and career are not the same thing. The call is a call to loser status, as far as the things of the world are concerned. If you really think about it, losing is so much more important than winning. When I hear you testify about your lack, your loss, your dependence, your need, it gives me hope for my own rather desperate loser condition. It binds me to you and is a basis for meaningful community. When you boast to me of your winning, I mostly just search for ways to increase my own boast so that I too can stand proud and tall. And that helps neither of us. It mostly just increases our social distance from one another. How upside down is the kingdom of God? How counterintuitive his ways. I wrote that and I thought that sounds like a psalm. David would have liked that. He would have included it. We're all after transcendence, and winning and boasting offers a kind of transcendence. But it's fleeting, and in it we are but a mist. The transcendence for which we all hunger only comes through losing. If we put away boasting, what then are we left with? Well, no trophies, nothing in my hand I bring. No self-referential actions, or we're just filling the vessel with the vessel. And that's just human emptiness. No announcing ourselves or we're like Zacchaeus in his pharisaical boast. But I wonder if we, as a college, rather than boasting in our winning, our superiority, our theology, our integrative ability, our godliness, our practical service, could start talking about how we might learn to lose together. I'm not even sure what that means. All I know is it would make us different than any other college I've ever heard of. What might it look like if we're the college that rejoices in its rivals? What might it look like to quit publishing and amplifying our boasts? I'm not sure, but I think that thinking about these things might be a step in the right direction. Because in Christ, to lose is to win. And surely this must apply to colleges as well as individuals. And if we're just winners in all the right worldly things, then we really aren't all that distinctive. Being winners is so common. The testimony and beauty of Christians is centered in their losing. So I invite you to lose with me. I invite you to join me in abject failure. I invite you to take up your cross and start trudging toward the great banquet to which only losers are admitted. And I invite you to enjoy being a loser, to relax into it. For it is losers to whom the kingdom of God has come and is coming. Boasting, it is excluded. I want to end with this in lieu of a prayer. James Ward or Uncle Jimmy, as I call him. We're related. Um, He's going to sing a song called The Lowest Place. And listen carefully to the words. 
Give me, thank you. Give me the lowest place. Not that I dare ask for that lowest place. But thou hast died that I might live and share thy glory by thy side. Give me the lowest place, not that I dare ask for that lowest place but thou hast died that I might live and share thy glory by thy side give me the lowest place or if for me that lowest place to hide make one more low that I may sit and see my God and love thee so Thy glory by thy side. 